We're in a series, this is week three in an Advent series. Typically, if you're joining us, we're, uh, we teach through books of the Bible, but we took a four-week break to, to, to spend some time thinking about discussing um, what is called the incarnation of Jesus, that is God coming into this world, um, God the Son stepping into his creation. So we've been pondering these things for the last uh, two weeks. This is our third one. Um, and we really are trying to get at this idea of how do we, uh, as Christians, live incarnationally uh, to this world? How do we step into the worlds and lives, or how do we step into the lives of lost people? How do we step into the lives of those that we're trying to reach? And we're, we're coming at that question through the avenue of how did Jesus do it? Okay, there's always a good way to figure out how to do something. How did Jesus do it? How did Jesus come into this world? So we've looked so far, uh, first of all, um, God sees. We looked at how the pre-incarnate Christ was in heaven and saw the world in despair, saw the world in brokenness and, and, and created a plan to come and to save. Uh, that was week one. And week two, we looked at um, God arrives and we talked about what it actually looked like for Jesus to be born and not, not just the cute little narrative uh, scene of, of baby Jesus, but the actual theological realities behind God becoming part of his creation. And we spent some time talking about how that all works out. And that was really a call for us to to think about how we can move into people's lives, how we can incarnate into people's lives um, like Jesus did. So this is week three. We'll have one more next week, which will be a little bit shorter. But this week, we're going to talk about Jesus walks, or God walks, and we're going to talk about um, coming alongside and walking through things with people. So to get us started on that, I, want, I have some statistics for you guys that will be no surprise to you whatsoever. Um, let me blitz through them. Uh, and if you, if you get lost or bored while I'm reading these statistics, you're part of the statistic, okay? Uh, here it goes. The average attention span has dropped by 25%. I'm sorry, did I already lose you? Are you good? Is everybody, oh, you're with me, okay. The average attention span has dropped by 25% in the last 15 years. That's crazy. From 15 seconds to 8.25 seconds, okay? So if you can't make it more than nine seconds into a YouTube video, you're the guy or the gal. Okay, that's you. You're, you're the one that lost that 15-second attention span. That's less than a goldfish, okay? Goldfish, they have a nine-second attention span. Uh, and I found all this on Google, so you know it's true, okay? Um, you can fact check me if you want. Uh, the average office worker checks their email 30 times. Hold on one second. Let me check my, my email. Okay. Um, I really do need to check. Okay. Uh, the average office worker checks his email 30 times every hour. That seems a little crazy to me. Every hour. Okay, I don't know why you'd want to do that. The average phone pickup is 1,500 times a week. That's three hours of your day that you're picking up your phone. And now they can track that really accurately because if iPhones and a lot of these things have these weekly screen reports, uh, which I don't even want to see, I don't even want to know how many hours, right? So um, literally 1,500 times a week we're picking up our phone uh, because our attention span short. So we get bored. Uh, it's the ultimate social thing, isn't it? Like, you, you're, you know, remember the days when you're waiting for someone to come to a, a meeting or something and you're waiting at a restaurant and you actually just had to sit there and people watch? Remember those days? Like, we don't do that anymore. Like, we pick up our phones. And because we never want to look like we're not important. We never want to look like we're not doing something. So we pick up our phones, and, and we don't even just know how to sit anymore, okay? Um, average page visit time is about 10 to 20 seconds, okay, on, on the Internet. Uh, average marriage lasts about eight years, okay? Eight years. Uh, average tenure of employment between ages of 25 and 34, so you know it's going to be good, uh, is three years. 
Okay, three years, average tenure of employment. Um, average tenure for a pastor at one church is 3.6 years. Isn't that crazy? I mean, some of these churches, they're, just like, they're blitzing through pastors, just like every three years. Um, I, someone, somebody told me uh, this, this, this app that came out about, um, I don't remember what it was called, um, and I don't want to give it a bad name anyways, but it was this idea of like pre-digested books. You pay a monthly membership, and, and it has all of the new popular books out, and somebody reads them. It's kind of like a Cliff Notes thing, I guess. Somebody reads them, and then they digest them into five to ten minute readable blocks. And somebody, and this guy was telling me about this. He's like, this is so great. You know, you can get all these books and get all this understanding because really, you know, just boil it down for you. And I said, that's everything I hate about my, my generation. It's everything I hate about my generation is the idea that you think you can take a book that would take you somewhere between maybe eight to 10 hours or, or 20 to 30 hours, depending on the book, whatever, and read that you could read it in five minutes and somehow walk away with the same amount of substance. It's just not true. It's just not the fact. And, and the problem is we're thinking so much about just the result. We're not just thinking about actually the experience of reading. It's not just about walking away getting the five bullet points of the book. It's about walking away having spent time grappling and thinking through things and that the book is trying to get you um, to go through. Now, my point is that there are some things that just cannot be condensed. There are some things that we have just lost the ability to focus on that take a really long time. And I sort of wonder, it seems like we're losing the ability to do long and intentional things. It feels like we we have just lost that ability to do that. Now, holding on to that, just chew on that for a minute, I want to ask a different question. I want to ask a different question. It's a little bit more of a theological question. And it's this, why did Jesus risk three years of public ministry? Why, why did he risk that? Okay. Now, if we know that Jesus came into this earth, we've discussed this already, if we know Jesus came into this earth primarily to go to the cross, wouldn't it have made more sense for him to sort of grow up in something like a Christmas tree farm, a very safe environment where there was no chance he could possibly blow it, Something like the, the Qumran community, which was this hyper-religious Judaistic community where they had ceremonial baths everywhere and they were, it was very, very, very sheltered. Wouldn't it have made sense for, for God to place Jesus in a place where he, he could not have possibly messed it up, right? I mean, it just, it's just the perfect environment so that he could grow up like the perfect ceremonial lamb in order to be crucified. But that's not exactly what Jesus does, He doesn't spend his entire life in obscurity. He chooses to spend most of it in obscurity and the last three, um, an explosive public figure. He explodes onto the scene as this person that that is is, is massively controversial and draws thousands of people in massive crowds and and, and, and seems to frustrate all kinds of different people. Like, why did he risk that? If the purpose was to go to the cross, why did he risk this public ministry? Couldn't there have been an easier way? Couldn't there have been a more simple way for Jesus to live his ministry? Now, the theological answer to that question, uh, I'm just going to touch on briefly because we already talked about it. The theological answer to why Jesus did uh, did his three-year ministry and his 33-year life was, first of all, that he needed to live the perfect life. Okay, he needed to live the perfect life. And living the perfect life doesn't mean living a life free of struggle. He needed to live a life that could actually um, be tested. Okay, the New Testament says Jesus was tested. He learned obedience. Okay? Uh, so that he could impute, that's a theological word for give, he gave his perfect life to us that he lived. He did everything right where we do almost everything wrong. He gives us his perfection. That's a theological reason. 
Uh, we needed a perfect example, right? We needed Jesus to come and live this like human life so we could look at it and be like, oh, that's how I'm supposed to live, okay? Um, we needed a relatable high priest, somebody that could intercede for us between us and the Father who could actually understand. Now, those are all the theological reasons Jesus lived for 33 years. But there's a practical reason that I want to I I really chew on with you guys this morning. There's a practical reason that he lived. And the practical reason was that there was something he needed to communicate. It was something he needed his people to get. And it wasn't something that could be communicated uh, via tweet or via 40-minute podcast. It was something that needed to be communicated over a certain period of time. It was a, a very important and a very complex idea. Now, what's interesting about Jesus' method is, to me, it seems all wrong. Uh, it, to me, it seems all wrong uh, when I really think about it. And if I'm really honest, I think, you know, if Jesus was trying to communicate an idea, he didn't do a very good job at it if you really think about what he did. Okay, what would you do if you had a very important idea to communicate? You, you, first of all, your Western mindset would tell you, communicate it to as many people as you can. Because that's how we quantify success. Um, get on as many social media platforms as you can. Get as many people liking your posts as possible. Get as much positive feedback and positive sort of uh, attention as you could to your message. That's how you or I would probably go about the campaign of getting a message out. But that's not what Jesus did. It almost seems, in a sense, like he was trying to make people not like him. Do you get that sense? Do you remember when he's got this massive crowd at this point of, of so-called disciples that are following him? And he literally tells them that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And the, and the, the crowd, what do they do? They leave. <laughs> They're gone. And, and the disciples are back there like, we just got all these people. They're finally here. And now you're chasing them off by telling them something weird. Why are you doing that? You think Jesus did that on accident? Does he need a PR guy? Was he just, <laughs> is he just a little confused about what's acceptable? No. And you remember what he says to them? He says, are you guys going to leave too? Peter goes, where else would we go? You're, you have the words of life, eternal life. You're the guy. Okay. It's interesting. Jesus alludes to this a little bit in Matthew 13. I'll just read it for you. Verse 10. When the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? In other words, why do you keep chasing everyone away? Why are you being so confusing, Jesus? It seems like you want to communicate something. Why is everything you're saying so cloaked? And he answers, verse 11, he answered them, to you, the disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. In other words, Jesus is like, I didn't really come at this point for them to get it. I came for you to get it. You 12. That's who I'm interested in. And then he skipped down to verse 16. It says, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people all throughout the Old Testament long to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. Oh, you guys are lucky. <laughs> what I'm trying to help you get is something that prophets and many godly people have desired forever to see. And you're going to get to see it, right? But Jesus wasn't interested in the masses, although he preached to them. Okay? He, he, he preached to them, but they weren't his primary focus. His primary focus, focus wasn't getting his message as wide and as broad as he could. His focus was getting his message as deep as he could into the hearts and minds of 12 strategic people. That was his goal, and he spent his time on that. He wanted his disciples to have an aha moment. 
You guys ever had one of those? One of those moments where you're like, oh, I never got that. And it took all of my life experiences culminating and this one catalytic key that just kind of unlocked it and I realized, oh, all that all makes sense. He wanted them to have this aha moment. And Jesus called that process of getting them to have this aha moment, you know what he called it? Discipleship. Discipleship. He wants them to understand. He wants them to get it. But he's not going to say, here's a five-minute version of it. He understands that what he's trying to get them to get is so eternal and so valuable and so large and so worth thinking about that he's willing to spend three intensive years every morning, every night, every day communicating this to these guys. Now, it's not as though every second Jesus with his disciples, he's just preaching. There was a lot of, hey, can you pass the salt? Hey, would you mind flipping my egg before it burns? You know, whatever. I don't know what Jesus, but he said a lot of those things as well. But he spent some serious time with these guys trying to get them to get something. It was something they needed to catch. It was something that they couldn't get in one sermon. And by the way, some of the best things you'll ever understand in life, you're not going to get in one sermon or one book. Okay? The things that are worth wrestling with. So here's our roadmap for this morning. Okay? Our objective... If our objective, which it is, if our objective as Christians is to make disciples, and by the way, that's the most clear mandate of the church. What are we supposed to do as a church? Make disciples. Really simple. It becomes confusing when you ask the question, what does that mean, right? But, but making disciples is the point. It is the, the calling of the church. If our objective is to make disciples, um, and included in making disciples is evangelism, by the way, because that's where discipleship starts, it doesn't end there, but it starts there. If that's our goal, then we need to ask three questions this morning, and that's going to be our outline. Okay, so if you're a note taker, um, here's our three questions. Um, regarding the disciples, when did they get it? Is our first question. Okay, when did they have that aha moment? When did they get it? Two, what was the it that he wanted them to get? What was the it that he wanted them to get? And thirdly, how did he help them get it? Okay, so that's, that's our outline. Let's just work through that. One, when did they get it? And my question here is this, when did the disciples really understand who they, they were following? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, Jesus comes to these guys, and they're fishing and do, going about their d- different businesses, tax collecting, and, and he doesn't walk up to them and say, uh, excuse me, I am God the Son, third person of the Trinity, pre- or, uh, incarnate Christ, fully God, fully man. Um, would you like to follow me? I'm going to come to the cross and atone for all the sins of the world through imputation. I'm going to give you my righteousness and take your, and then I'm going to resurrect and ascend to the right hand of the Father, and, and then we're going to Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit's going to come, and there's going to be churches for 2,000. Like, he didn't say any of that. It would have been great, but he didn't do that. He comes up to these guys, and what does he say? Hey, do you guys want a job? I'm homeless. <laughs> I can't pay you. And the job is going to be catching people. Okay? It's going to be catching people. Uh, you know, basically, he invited them to be um, his apprentice, which was backwards. Usually, someone would approach apprentice about apprenticing. He approaches them, and he says, would you like to be my Apprentice. Now, you got to ask, if you're thinking critically, why, would, why were they following him? Like, why would they think, sure, I'll drop my business, and I'll set aside everything I've known, and I'll go be homeless with you. Why would they do that? Who did they think they were following? They certainly didn't know all that he was. Who did they think that he was? We need to ask this question. Um, 
when, when we're discussing them, we need to ask this question. When did they understand who it was that they were following? Was it at the beginning? Was it at the middle? Was it at the end? Let's start at the beginning. When, when, when Jesus first called them, who did they think that they were following? Okay? Um, Jesus says, come with me, make, I'll make you fishers of men. That's pretty much all we have recorded that he says at first. So who did they think they were following? Well, uh, I don't think it was God. I really don't think that they actually thought they were following God at first. Okay? Uh, and here's why I think that. Uh, Matthew chapter 8, I won't have you turn there, but in Matthew chapter 8, you know the story. Um, they're in the boat um, in, in the Sea of Galilee. This is still in the Galilean section of Jesus' ministry. Um, they're in the boat, and this massive storm comes, and Jesus is just down there taking a nap. And the storm is getting out of control and crazy, and the disciples are start to freak, starting to freak out. Okay? And there's a tiny little boat. It could easily capsize. They could easily drown, and they're thinking, where is our guy? <laughs> Why isn't he up here? So they go and they get him and they think, Jesus, do you care not that we perish? King James, do you care not that we perish? And he comes up and what happens? He speaks and the wind and the waves obey him. That's a pretty God-like thing to do, right? Okay. And, and what is the disciples' reaction? They go, they're terrified. They were terrified, not of the storm. They were terrified of, who is this man? Is there, who is this man? What sort of man is this that the wind and the waves obey him? So the disciples in the beginning, they don't have a clue. They really don't. They don't think this guy's God. They're absolutely blown away by the fact that he just spoke and creation has obeyed him. Okay? What they probably did think was is that he was a particular nuance of the word Messiah. Have you guys heard the word Messiah before? Okay, here's what Messiah means. It's one of those terms we throw in at church and not everybody really gets it. Here's what Messiah means, or what it would meant to the first century um, audience that spoke it. Messiah is um, a Greek, uh, the Greek word for Messiah is Christos, by the way, which you get word Christ. So when you say Jesus Christ, you're saying Jesus Messiah. Okay, that's the Greek, Jesus Messiah, Jesus Christos. Uh, Jesus was his first name. Christ is not his last name. Okay, that is his designation. So, so it's Messiah is basically in, in Hebrew, it just means anointed. It means anointed. It's a very generic term. It's not as though there was a proper name called Messiah that Jesus said, hey, I'm that guy. I'm the proper name, Messiah, that you've been waiting for. No, Messiah was kind of a general term. It's kind of like the word God today. You ever, you ever tell, you talk to someone and you're really feeling like you should share Jesus with them and you kind of you wimp out real quick and you just drop the word God instead? Because you know that it's culturally palatable? Because God can mean anything and everything. God in certain religions is a creation. Like my muffin, that's God, right? Uh, yeah, that's weird. But that's, some religions think that, right? Some religions, I mean, God could mean anything and everything. So Messiah really was just a generic term um, that really didn't mean um, any particular thing to, to anyone in particular. It meant lots of things to lots of people. It just meant anointed. So in the Old Testament, when a, a prophet um, was, was anointed, they were considered in many ways Messiah in that sense that they were the one sent by God. When a king was anointed, that's the same word. They were, they were chosen by God. Messiah just means someone chosen by God. Okay. Now, the idea of the Davidic Messiah, which is this idea that the son of David, the king, was going to come, this became the most common interpretation of what Messiah meant. And the problem with that, and the reason Jesus didn't really like calling himself that, was because they had a militaristic idea behind that. Do you understand what I mean by that? They thought that the Messiah that was to come was going to be a general. He was going to come, and he was going to take out Rome, and he was going to set up 
Jerusalem as the capital and Israel as a, as a sort of a world-ruling empire again. Um, and that was their idea of what Messiah was coming to do. So Jesus didn't use that name for himself because it was a little bit confusing. But that's probably at this point who they thought they were following. Hey, this is the guy, the human anointed by God, called to be the one to lead us in probably some kind of a war against Rome in order that we could be free um, and and reestablished as a superpower. That was what they thought they were following. Now, without a doubt, these guys knew they were following someone sent by God, right? They knew that because John the Baptist, the forerunner, made that clear. They knew everybody liked John the Baptist. Everybody knew he was from God. And John the Baptist was the one that said, behold, the Lamb of God, right? Takes away the sin of the, of the world. John the Baptist even sends his disciples to follow Jesus. So they know that he's anointed by God. They know he's sent by God. They know he's some kind of a prophetic person, but they don't have a clue who he really is, especially not at the beginning of the ministry. Well, what about the middle? What about the middle of the ministry of Jesus with his disciples? Do you think they got it then? Seems like it if you look at this passage. Flip over to Matthew chapter 16. Again, we're just wrestling with this idea. What, what did these guys think that Jesus was? Who did they think Jesus was? Matthew 16. This is a really interesting passage to study if you ever have time. Matthew 16. You don't have time not to study this passage. Um, Matthew 16, 13. You're familiar with this probably. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In other words, hey guys, what's the word on the street about me? What are people saying about me? Okay. And they answered, well, some say John the Baptist. Okay, that would have been the ghost of John the Baptist because he's been beheaded at this point. And uh, Herod was actually terrified that Jesus was John the Baptist, come back to get, um, you know, to, to level up with him for, for taking him out. Long story. Others say Elijah, because the Old Testament prophesies Elijah will come. Others, Jeremiah, or notice, or one of the prophets. So the, 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 the Hebrew mindset of who Jesus might be, this man who's clearly from God because he's healing people, he's causing people to walk, he's doing all of these miraculous things. Everyone could tell he was from God. The word on the street was, well, maybe he's one of the prophets. What does that mean? The, the traditional view at this point was that there was anywhere from one to seven different prophets that were to come before um, the great day of the Lord, the day when, when Israel would be reestablished. Anywhere from one to seven different prophets. And they think, well, maybe Jesus is one of them. See, they read the Old Testament and they came across all these different passages. We've got the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. We've got the root of Jesse, uh, the son of David, you know, in, in, in uh, first or second Samuel. We've got all these different figures that are coming. So surely there must be like five, six, maybe seven of these guys that are going to come. So that's the word on the street. And here's what Jesus does. He turns to Simon Peter and he says, who do you, or I'm sorry, he says to the, to the group, he says, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies, he was the spokesman. Listen to what he says. You are the Christ, which means what? Messiah. So the anointed, you are the anointed, the son of the living God. Now, that doesn't mean you were, you were born or created by God. What, what Peter's literally saying is that you are equal with God. We know that's what he meant by son of God because they were going to kill him for that. It says that particularly, uh, if you want to look it up 
later, where is the reference? John 5, 18. Uh, specifically, they were going to kill Jesus because he said he was a son of God, making himself equal with God. So what Peter's saying is, is you are the anointed one sent by God, and you are the son of the living God. Pretty impressive, right? How did he get that? Did he really know what he was saying? And listen to Jesus' response. Jesus answered to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, dude, you're way too thick to know what you're talking about right now. Okay? That's my translation. But my Father who is in heaven, and he, in other words, God spoke that through you. You don't even know what you just said, man. You don't even understand. You nailed it, but you didn't know you nailed it. And I tell you, Peter, now listen to this. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's not talking about the Pope. If any of you have studied this before, it's not saying, hey, Peter, your great, 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 great grandson or whatever is going to be the foundation of the church. No. What's the foundation of the church? The proclamation of the deity of Jesus. The lordship of Jesus. This message that just came out of your mouth, Peter, that's so earth-shattering that we're going to build a church on that. The foundation of who Jesus is. I will build my church. Gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It doesn't mean we're charging the gates of hell. It just means that death won't stop this. Okay, death can't stop this. Verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, whatever you do now, the kingdom of God is going to increase through what you're doing. There's now an interface, a portal between your hands and the kingdom of God. You're able to increase it. And then verse 20, he strictly charged the disciples, tell no one that he was the Christ. Don't tell anybody that. Why? Because Jesus isn't interested in the whole crowd of getting it at this point. It's not his point. Okay, so what do you think? Do you think they got it in the middle? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think they get it. I think Peter just said it, but he said it because the Spirit said it through him. You ever had things like that in your life? You say something, and you're like, I don't even know how I knew to say that. That was just a Holy Spirit thing. Okay, that's kind of what happens there. Now, here's why I really don't think Peter gets it. Look at the next verse. And 21, literally, literally the next verse, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and what? Suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. I think that's interesting. I think it's interesting because Jesus says, now I can start to share some things with you guys. You're starting to get it. Maybe you're starting to, to fully understand a little bit more who I am. So I'm going to start giving you more details. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And so Peter, who was feeling pretty good about himself because he just made this absolutely amazing theologically accurate claim, he's sitting there and he's listening to Jesus talk about how he's going to die and be murdered. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. Jesus, come here. Pulls him aside. And he starts to rebuke him. He pulls him aside. Verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. In other words, no, 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 Jesus. Remember, I'm the one who figured out who you are. You don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> let, me, let me help you. This isn't, your, this isn't what Messiah does. Messiah rules and reigns. You're talking about dying. Why are you talking about dying? You're supposed to be the king. He rebukes him. And listen to what Jesus says. He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Oh, man. You are a hindrance to me. <laughs> wow. What does that tell you about the importance of Christ's death? You're, 
Coming against the death of Christ was satanic. That's what he's saying. To me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. So what do you think? Did Peter get it? No, he didn't get it. He didn't understand. It's fairly clear that he didn't understand in the middle. Even John the Baptist, I'm not, we're not going to go there, but Matthew 11, um, verse 1 through 6, John the Baptist, who was the guy who really was the forerunner of Christ, he's sitting in prison and he's sending his guys out to Jesus saying, hey, can you go figure out if he's the Messiah or not? Or do we expect another? Even John the Baptist um, is still kind of not sure what to do with Jesus. And you know, it's funny, you can look at that and go like, was, you know, Jesus was supposed to be the greatest teacher ever. Why couldn't he get this through to these guys? I don't think he was really trying to right away. I, I actually think he was okay with them not getting it right away. You think they got it at the end, maybe? Do you think after he went to the cross they got it? Let's look and see. Luke 24. I'm not going to have you turn there. I'm just going to give you a paraphrase because we're running out of time. Okay, Luke 24. Here's the story. Um, Jesus has gone to the cross. Everyone's disappointed. They thought he was going to be the king, and now he's dead. So these two disciples are heading back, um, sad, somber, bummed out, their tail between their legs. They're heading back to Damascus after the crucifixion, after Passover. Um, and Jesus, the resurrected Lord, doesn't, nobody knows he's resurrected yet. He comes up behind them and he says, hey, guys, what are you talking about? What's going on? What's the, what's the scoop? And, and they say, are you the only one that doesn't know? <laughs> Jesus died. They're so disappointed, and, and, and it's so intriguing to me what their response is regarding who Jesus was. Uh, it's something you'd probably read right over, but their response in Luke 24, 13 through 24, uh, their response is, he was a prophet, mighty indeed. He was just another prophet that, is, that Jerusalem killed. Just another one. They do it all the time. They kill the prophets. That's what they do. Just a guy. We thought he was more than that, but now he's dead. So here we are, after three years of ministry, Jesus spent all of this time, thousands of hours with these disciples, and now he's gone to the cross, and do they get it at this point? What do you think? Anybody? Want to be bold? No, they don't get it. They still don't get it. Isn't that funny? I mean, they, they, these guys have been with Jesus every day. He's told them like 50,000 times he's going to go to a cross. He literally died. I mean, he tells them over and over and over again, I'm going to the cross, 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 and they still didn't get it. They were still confused when he did. They just didn't understand. Here's my conclusion in this first point. I'm just trying to get one thing across, and I'm kind of laboring it, but I think it's important. Um, this was a process that apparently Jesus did not see as something that could be rushed. This process of discipleship that he spent with these guys for three years, it wasn't something that he saw that could, be, could just really be boiled down. It was something that he saw as needing to, to just be able to exist in a place of tension. Uh, and he let these guys sort of live in this, this place of not understanding for a while. That's how Jesus saw fit to come in and make disciples. Now, they did get it, but do you know when they got it? Probably about Pentecost. <laughs> after, after the Holy Spirit came, and we'll get more into that, but, but really they just didn't get it throughout the whole mission. I think they got bits and pieces of it. Now, I want to ask the next question. What is the it that he wanted them to get? What is it that Jesus was trying to get these guys to understand that was so important? And the answer, if you want to write it down, and then I'll kind of unpack it, the answer is he was trying to get them to get the unexpected king and his unexpected kingdom. You see, they were so confused by the idea that Jesus or that the Messiah or that the Savior could be both the son of David and the suffering servant and how in the world those two things went together. 
But I want you to look at something really quickly in Luke 24. Luke 24, verse 25. I want you to see when Jesus shows up on the road to Emmaus. I was just talking about that story. When he shows up on the road to Emmaus and he reveals something to them, listen to what he reveals. This is really important. Tune in here. 25, or chapter 24, verse 25. So after Jesus reveals himself to them, he says, foolish, he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. In other words, everything that has happened was already said to have happened. Verse 26, was it not necessary? Okay, I would circle that word. Was it not necessary? It had to happen that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. Jesus is saying, do you see it now? It had to happen this way. I had to suffer and I had to enter into my glory. Those two things had to happen. I had to suffer in order to redeem the world and I had to enter into my glory in order to rule the world. Only those two things happening is the way that ultimately everything could come uh, as it was supposed to. And I'm not going to belabor that point because that's not what I'm trying to get at. He's trying to explain to these guys this reality that because he went to the cross and because he's resurrected and because he will ascend, that this kingdom of God is going to break in to the world. It's going to break into the world through the scriptures, through the gospel, through the church, and it's going to continue to break in and scatter and explode over 2,000 years until Christ returns again and establishes his physical rule and reign for eternity. Okay, This is such a massive thing that Jesus chose to let these guys spend three years swimming around in confusion so that he could turn the lights on in an instant. He shows them through the scriptures how everything was pointing to him so that he could be the perfect atonement, the perfect king in every way. Now, here's, here's what I want you to think about. Okay? Once this reality clicked for these guys, they were completely different guys. Look at, do a character study sometimes. Look at Peter pre-Pentecost, pre-resurrection. And look at Peter post-Pentecost, post-resurrection. It's a different guy. Now, we know it was because of the Holy Spirit, partly. But it was also because something clicked for these guys about who Jesus was and about what he was doing and about what he was going to do. And it was so severe to them that it changed every single part of their entire life. Okay? Discipleship, listen to me, discipleship is walking alongside people and helping them get this aha moment that everything is about Christ and that Christ's kingdom is the thing, that, the preeminent thing they should be living for, that it's breaking into this world, that it's breaking into their hearts, into their lives, that it's going to continue to break in and to, to, to a point where God will literally be ruling and reigning on this earth for eternity. This idea, it, it changes you. It changes the way that you think about everything. When you got saved, you know what happened? God flipped a switch in your mind. He allowed you to believe something, and that something has changed the entire course of your life. You wouldn't be here if it didn't change your entire course of your life. I, I see the, the, the process of Christian growth as this series of, 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 of God's truth breaking into our minds, these aha moments over and over again. One of them is when you get saved, right? Oh, I belong to God. Changes the way you think about life. Another one is the moment that you realize you're most free when you're most a slave to God. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you may not have had that moment yet. 
Okay, it's the moment where a fish realizes he's most free in the water. When you're born again, you realize you're most free in the will of God. If you want to be really miserable, just don't do what God says. You're not, you're not saved by your works, but you're free in, in, when, you, when you are working the works of God. That's, that's a breaking in moment, an aha moment where you go, oh, oh, I get it. I'm a terrestrial species now. I've been born again. That's what Jesus was saying when he said, come with me and I'll make you fishers of men. He was talking about kingdom transfer. The ancients thought of the water and the air as two separate kingdoms. You understand that? So taking a fish out of the water and pulling it into the air was a kingdom transfer. He's saying, hey, come and we'll catch men and women and we will transfer them into another kingdom. That is what Christian growth is. It's realizing I don't live in this kingdom anymore. I live in this one. Another, um, another aha moment, another maturity moment, a counterintuitive realization is when you realize you're part of a body. Oh, I have brothers and sisters, and we're connected. That's why we come to church, to be with the body. Another one is when you realize that you're part of a mission. Oh, God actually wants me to do something. It's his mission. He wants me to tune into it. These are maturity points. They're points when God's kingdom breaks into your mind, breaks into your life. Now, Jesus, here's my, here's my overall thesis, my overall point, and we're going to get into some practice and, and be done. Okay, my point is, is that Jesus was leading these guys to this aha moment, but he did it patiently. He did it patiently. He was very patient in the way that he did it. I want to give you four practical points about how Jesus did this, okay? So if you're the practical people in here, you're like, yay. Just the kid of the practical thing. Okay, four practical points about how Jesus made disciples. Okay, the first one is, I already said it, the first one is patience. Jesus was patient. He was patient in making disciples. This really is a struggle for us. This is what my whole introduction was about, okay? This is a really struggle for us. Our attention span is eight seconds, less than a goldfish. We really want immediate results, when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to discipleship, we want things fast. Now, let me suggest to you that discipleship and evangelism is a long game. It's about the long game. Can everybody say long game? Long game. I want you to remember those two words. When you come up against somebody and you think, hey, here's an opportunity. I don't want you to think, what could I say that would just seal the deal right now? So I can just say, man, I got someone saved. I want you to think long game. Long game. What's the long game with this person? Am I willing to say yes to a relationship with this person that may take a really long time? God doesn't seem interested in doing things really quickly all the time. Sometimes. Sometimes he does. Sometimes somebody gets saved and it's like their addiction's gone. And things, but there's still a long maturity process. And yes, we have the, the thief on the cross, and we understand that, but, but the way God tends to work, and we don't like this in our millennial, um, postmodern kind of, we don't like this, but God takes a long time to do things. Uh, consider the fact that he spent, depending on the way you read the Old Testament, upwards of 6,000 plus years before even getting to Jesus. <laughs> I mean, he, he, he really spent a long time with Israel. Like, why didn't you just send your son earlier? Well, God isn't interested in doing things as quickly as we might hope him to do sometimes. I mean, consider the fact that, that the church has been in existence for 2,000 years. <laughs> Jesus, are you coming back? Or what? Why is it taking so long? He doesn't do things as quickly as we would kind of like, and I'm actually really thankful for this. We have a hard time with this in our Western paradigm of efficiency. See, we equate efficiency with, with the littlest amount of time for the maximum amount of result. Right? That's how we think about things. So when you're in a business, you think, how can I pay people less, have them do less hours, and have them get more done? 
okay? More apps, more smartphone things, like what, whatever we have to do to maximize efficiency. So we take that, that paradigm and we put it over God and we say, God, are you really good? Because if you're so good, shouldn't you be able to fix this whole broken world thing like that? Ever heard anybody argue that before? God can't be good. If he wasn't good, he'd be fixing everything right now. Done, gone, fixed. No more hurt, no more pain. Okay, well, that would be unfortunate for everyone that is still has potential to come to Christ because they're the problem. We're the problem. But we look at God that way and we say, God, speed it up. He doesn't think that way. He doesn't work that way. He, you know, long game strategies are different. It's a totally different kinds of games. You have quick game strategies, which, um, you know, like basketball, okay? The, the shot clock's going. You've got so many seconds to get down past the ball and get the ball in the rim. Like, that's the point, okay? Nothing slows down until you, point it, you throw a free throw or whatever. It's a fast-paced game. That's fast game. That's not discipleship. It doesn't work like that. I want you to think long game. Okay, I did my first marathon a couple years ago. Don't be impressed. I stopped running, and uh, I need to start again. Um, but I did it, barely, and it was hard. But, man, the strategy for marathoning is totally different. It's totally I, You know how long it took me to do my marathon? This is not impressive, so don't be impressed. Four hours and 25 minutes. Four hours and 25 minutes of running. I had to really think about this thing. I had to think about what I had for breakfast, think about what time I got up, think about what kind of shoes I was wearing, and think about how often I took water breaks, how often I took, um, you know, and, and ate some, some different things. I needed to think about my pace. I needed to think about setting my pace, not getting excited, how many layers to wear. I mean, there were so many strategic things that I had to think about because I was going to be running for the next four and a half hours. And everything I did in the first three and a half made the difference of whether I was dying in the last hour, which I was, or whether I was having fun. Okay, long game, totally different. The thing about long game is sometimes you have to look like you're losing. You ever play those strategy games like Risk, the ones that can take you three days? Sometimes it looks like you're losing. Chess players, sometimes it looks like they're losing. It's a long game. They're thinking differently. They're not just thinking about how can I get the quickest results right now. We have got to break out of that mindset if we're going to really help people in this city. If we're going to really disciple people in this church and outside of this church. If we're going to really see people come to Christ, we have to stop saying, I want to walk up to someone, give them a rehearsed five-point speech on why they should get saved, and then they're going to just burst into tears and fall onto their knees, and, and I'm going to bring them to church, and they're going to get baptized, and then I can feel really good about myself. Like, we've got to break out of that. That doesn't happen very often. Okay? It doesn't happen very often. This is long game. Long game. Let me give you some advice for long game discipling. Okay? Some advice for long game discipling. A few things. First of all, present nuggets worth getting down to dig out. Okay? Now, when you think about this, Jesus, when he was hanging out with these guys, he would throw things out to them that they didn't have a clue about. You notice that? Doesn't that seem kind of like he was a bad teacher? I mean, if I did that, like, you guys would be like, Sam, we don't know what you're saying. Stop it. And I'd go, oh, I'm so sorry. You're right. You know, I should be more clear. Jesus didn't, he didn't repent for that. He said things that were confusing all the time, and he was okay with it. What is he doing? He's throwing out supernatural truth way too big for these guys to grab, and he was okay with that. I think we should learn from him. I'm not saying you should throw around sanctification, justification, glorification, um, penal substitutionary atonement. I'm not saying you should throw out those words to people. What I'm saying is that you should throw out, uh, I, I want to call them like gospel bombs, sticky gospel bombs. And you just throw it and it sticks and they're like, I don't know what that meant, but I'm going to chew on that. Here's an example. The other day I was driving through um, 
through Dutch Bros, and there's a, a young guy there that I've, I've met a couple different times. I don't think he knows that I'm the same guy every time, but that's just, he's my broista, you know? And so... Anyway, it's a really cool guy. He, his daughter goes to school with my, my daughter, and so um, and, and he's like Native American. He believes in Native American religion. And so we've had a few different quick conversations through Dutch Bros. And the last one was really interesting. Um, he said, what are you doing this morning? I said, I'm going to church. I didn't tell my pastor. If I tell him that, it's over. Okay, I'm just a weirdo. So I just say, I'm going to church. And uh, people ask me what I do. I'm going to start saying, uh, I work at a nonprofit. Uh, <laughs> spiritual development, I don't know. You know? But, but I didn't tell him I was a pastor. I just said, I'm going to church. And he's like, oh. He's like, so let me ask you a question. And I'm like, okay. He's like, what do you think? Uh, do you think that science proves creation or proves evolution? And I said, oh, without a doubt, it proves creation. So, oh, okay. I was like, let me ask you a question. I was like, what do you, what do you think is more likely? That stuff created a mind, or that mind created stuff? And he kind of was like, hmm. I was like, just think about it. And then I left. (laughs) I didn't say like, hey man, pray this prayer after me, bro. Like, you know, I didn't do that. I just kind of like, sticky bomb. Like, maybe he'll think about that. Just to think about it. I don't know. It may never come out to anything. I don't know. But I think it's okay to do that sometimes. I think that if we're people that have really deep thoughts and really good answers... It's okay to throw things out that people can just kind of chew on. I think that's kind of how Jesus did it. He did that with parables, didn't he? And I, I know that when these guys got it, when they had their aha moment, they're going back through all of this. That's what the epistles are. That's a lot of, like, the, you're, you're seeing pro- Peter and his epistles processing everything he learned from Jesus and going, oh, I get it. Okay. It's okay to do that. Um, some more advice for long game discipleship. Still under patience, by the way. Um, Choose the messy stable over the one without any livestock. Choose the messy stable over the one without any livestock. Um, Jesus graciously allowed these guys um, to, 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 (laughs) I'm going to say it, to to, to theologically poop their pants. I mean, they just, they were babies. They just said stupid things all the time. And Jesus was like, oh, you know, I'll just change your diaper. And, you know, they were spiritual babies. And he, let, he like, what if you, you know, what if your one-year-old is, 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 is walking along and just takes his first couple steps, you know, and then he, and then he, and then he, and then he poops his pants and he goes, what's wrong with you? You know, like, stop pooping your pants. Don't you understand that this is like, no, you don't do that. Like, good job. You took a step. Now let's go change your poopy diaper. Okay. The, the, there's this idea, and it's in the Proverbs, that, that you can have a clean stable, but there's no, there's no life in it. Our lives need to be lives that aren't so perfectly neat and tight that, that we feel like we're, we're really safe. Our lives need to be lives where we're inviting messiness into them to such a degree uh, that we're allowing people that have different thinking into our lives so that we can have a chance to maybe help shape that. And that's kind of uncomfortable. It's kind of messy. I want to read a, a quote for you guys from a, a book uh, it's by Rosario Butterfield. She's an evangelist. She wrote a book. I think it's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. Uh, I didn't read it. My wife did. It's kind of a checkbook, but I think it's really good. Um, it's just the cover. It looks like a checkbook. So. Um, but she, she pointed this quote out to me. It was really good. And Now, this is in the context of her talking about how she has a lesbian neighbor who she had been loving on. Now, she, had, she had just started this relationship with this, this lesbian neighbor. Um, And and listen to what she says. She said, when the tears spill as a neighbor I love confesses that her partner finds her ugly and makes fun of her, I can gently move in with warm hands and steaming mugs of strong coffee, full eye contact, saying only this, Jesus would never treat you like this. Jesus loves his daughter perfectly. Now, listen. 
because I know some of you are thinking, seriously, just listen. Do I have the grace to say this little? Do I always have to say everything there is to say on a subject? If so, I am a brute and a bore. By grace, I put a guard over my mouth. I pray Ephesians 4.29, which shows me how. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. My words give grace to those who hear. My words are not pep talks. I hope indeed that my words are not even my own, but Christ's words through me. Invest in your neighbors for the long haul. The hundreds of conversations that make up a neighborhood and stop thinking, listen to this, stop thinking of conversations with neighbors as sneaky evangelistic raids on their sinful behavior. (laughs) Okay, now, I don't think she's in any way saying that she's never going to bring up the fact that this girl's lifestyle is hurtful or harmful. I think what she's realizing is that she needs to move, as we say, at the speed of trust, right? That, that, that there is a time to have that conversation. And, and that conversation is, is going to happen, but this is not the time. And, and does she ha- do we have enough grace to not feel like we have to say, let me tell you why you're unhappy, because this is what you do, and this is what you do, and this is what you do, and if you would just do the right things, it's not the point. We need to have enough grace to allow messiness. Otherwise, non-Christians will never want to be around you. You will just fulfill the caricature that you are nothing but judgmental. There is a time. There is a time to reveal different levels of God's truth. And we need these people to know that we love them first. I know that's controversial. But walking up to somebody on a street corner and telling them, screaming in their face with a megaphone, if they're a homosexual, that, that God hates you, is absolutely not okay. It's absolutely not okay. We need, we need to find inroads to these people. We need to let enough messiness like Jesus did that he actually had the ability to speak truth to people's lives. We need to affect people, not collect people. Okay, affect people. Like, don't think about people as like, maybe I could catch this person and, and, and make them one of my you know, like, that's not how we got to think. We got to think, this person may never repent, but I am going to love them and give them the gospel regardless. You know what Jesus did the night before he went to the cross? He washed Judas's feet. Okay? He loved him to the end. He gave him every possible chance to woo him over by his goodness. Can you imagine Judas sitting there watching his Lord wash his feet, knowing full well what he was going to do? Okay, some, some of these people we're going to love, by God's grace, may never actually convert. Are we willing to love them and share the gospel with them? And again, and again, and again. Mark my words, every time I sit down with someone and I say, how did you get saved? The answer is this one person would not leave me alone. And it was never they kept shouting at me. It was never they kept coming up to me on the street corner. It was always, it was my mom. She's prayed for me every night. It was my friend. He wouldn't stop calling me. And he was my friend regardless of whether I got saved or not. That's the key. He was my friend regardless of whether I chose to, to, to get saved or not. Just quickly, let me go over these last three categories. Uh, the second we need to learn from Jesus regarding um, how to make disciples is dimension. Okay, dimension. Jesus embodies his message. I'm not going to belabor this one. Let me just ask you one question. Why would someone believe that you actually care about their eternal life if you don't even care about their immediate life? Why would they ever think that? It's such a cheap thing to come up and and shout something at somebody without ever making an investment in their physical well-being. You notice Jesus does both? He's preaching all day and his 
people are hungry. What does he feeds them? He feeds them. He cares. He shows them that, that, they, that he actually cares about their physical. Now, that's not the, the highest good for them, but it is good for them. Number three, contextualization. Contextualization. I know that's a big word, but contextualization is knowing your audience. This is, I think, the number one thing we go wrong with discipleship and evangelism. We don't know who we're talking to because we haven't taken time to listen. We haven't taken time to sit down and say, tell me your story. Figure out where they're coming from. Okay? There's some, some things you need to think about with contextualization. Um, first of all, is there any commonality between you and them? And I guarantee you there is. I guarantee you there is. Jesus comes up to the woman at the well, and what does he do? He knows there's a piece of commonality between her. Uh, he knows that the commonality is that she's already believed something, and that is that she's miserable. <laughs> she's thirsty. She already knows. Jesus doesn't have to spend time explaining to her what, sin, what a sinner she is. She already knows she is. So Jesus is able to come right in with grace, right? He, he, he finds that commonality. Looking for familiarity, okay? Jesus, with his parables, what did he do? He uses agriculture. He uses things that people understood. Looking for continuity. What universal longing do they already have that is just simply resting on the wrong object? If there's anything you want you to tune in, tune into that. What universe, when you're sitting across from one, whether it be it's a non-Christian or it's someone that, that just needs to be discipled, what universal longing do they have that they have just tuned or have they attached to the wrong thing? Uh, Christmas. What is Christmas? Why is it so attractive to people? Uh, because it's a universal longing for peace, for joy, for comfort, for love, for family. These are good things, but they are attached to the wrong thing. They're attached to family itself. So, so what you do is you, you see, how can I take and scoop up those universal longings and reconnect them to the source of those things? So what Jesus did when he, he stood up at the Feast of Booths, when they were, were, were marching around and ready to pour this water out, which was a symbol of God's, um, of God's faithfulness to, to, um, to water Israel, Jesus stands up and he says, I am the living water. What is he doing? He's letting them know, hey, this universal longing that you guys have already agreed on, that, that you need to be um, watered, I'm the water. Okay, that's our job. We, we just, what is it people are longing for? I mean, everybody's longing for it. We're all humans. We're all longing for it. What's that connecting point? What's that commonality? Everyone has commonality. I'll give you a really easy one. Everyone knows the world's broken. If you can't find a connecting point with a non-Christian, talk about the brokenness of the world. They'll agree with you. Polit politics are, are, are polarized. People are dying. People are sick. There's all kinds of hurt and pain in the world. And you can say, yeah, I agree. Oh, we agree. And then you can move that graciously towards a conversation of, but what is the ultimate fix for that? What is the ultimate answer for that? Lastly, boundaries, and we'll end here. Boundaries, Jesus knew, and listen, I know it's, it's getting to be an hour here. Jesus knew where his ministry ended and the spirits began. He knew where he was up against the threshold of his humanity. He knew where he could lead these guys without what is called regeneration, being born again. He knew where he could lead them until there was a, a threshold there that the Holy Spirit had to come in and change their hearts. And, and you guys will, will come up against this frustration where you can only lead people so far without the Holy Spirit doing what the Holy Spirit does, which means we need to pray which means we need to lead people to the Holy Spirit. Pentecost was when it really clicked for these guys. Jesus says, I'm out of here. I'm sending the Spirit. The Spirit's going to do the deep work. And the Spirit's going to bring up all of the seed, all of the truth that I've 
cast out over you guys and apply it and bring it into real life and bring it into dimension. So Jesus knew where his ministry ended and the spirits began. And you need to know where your ministry ends and the spirit begins. This is the hardest thing for me to deal with as a pastor because I want to change everything. I want to have sermons that change the way everybody thinks. But in reality, there's a point where my physicality ends and the spirit has to begin. And my physicality doesn't get me very far. The spirit has to pick up and do the real work. And we need to believe that. Jesus knew the limits of his physicality. How many guys did he hang out with? Twelve. Why? Well, he, he knew that was about all he could handle. And his, as, as a human, having added humanity to his divinity, he knew, like, hey, if I'm, if I'm with more than about twelve, it's going to dilute my ability to really shape these guys. What, what I'm saying that is that you need to be honest about how many people you can really love and disciple in your life. You can't be Jesus to everyone. Jesus wasn't trying to be Jesus to everyone in his human life. He picked 12, and he said, these are my guys, okay? You're probably not Jesus, so maybe pick eight. <laughs> maybe pick three, I don't know, you know, whatever your, your capacity is. And lastly, he knew the limits of his calling. He knew who he was called to, and that's where you need to wrestle with and say, God, who are you calling me to? Who are these people that I can, I can choose to say yes to and invest and these are questions we need to wrestle with, and these are things that I think we learn from Jesus regarding discipleship. Now, by way of conclusion, why did Jesus risk three years of public life and ministry? That's how I opened this sermon. How, why did Jesus risk three years of public life and ministry? The answer is because the most important truths are worth patiently teaching. And I want to encourage you guys that when you look at people in front of you, not the idea of people, not the idea of discipleship, when you look at people, think, okay, is it worth it? To step into a meaningful relationship with this person that could lead to a gospel opportunity that will change this person's eternity? And the answer, of course, is yes, it's worth it. And this is how Jesus did it. May we follow his example. May we follow his approach. The call is to be patient. The call is to extend our attention spans. The call is to, to hang with people. The, the, the call is to call them the next day even when they blow it. The call is to call them the next day even when they don't sign on the dotted line. To continue to pursue, to wash their feet to the end and pray for them in hopes that something could really happen. Amen?